Welcome to all things turds and glitter. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's so, so nice to know that some of you are avid listeners now and tune in every week for more turd tales. That is very, very cool. Thank you. I'm in a slightly more serene spot compared to last week uh, for this week's pod intro. I'm at home under a blanket and Lady Marms is purring away next to me. Today's chat episode covers quite a heavy but important topic. My guest Laura Dockrill shares her experience of postpartum psychosis and I wanted to give you a heads up in case this is a particularly triggering topic for you right now. I am so proud of Laura for sharing what she went through. Uh, As she describes it, it was absolute hell. And for her to have found the words and this almighty fire and strength to hold on is actually just so incredible. You will be blown away by what she says. You will also hear that for some reason, speaking to Laura makes me quite sweary. Not sure why. Um, guess I'm just quite passionate about about Laura's turd. So anyway, have a listen and I'll see you on the other side. Today I'm speaking with poet, illustrator, fun clothes and pink lipstick wearer, an award-winning children's book author and memoir writer, Laura Dockrill. Hello, Laura. Hello. Hey, Chris. And I can confirm for all the people listening, she is indeed wearing her pink lipstick today and cute bunches. And she looks really cool. And I'm <laughs> I'm wearing pink lipstick, but it's not as bright. I thought I'd wear some in your honour. Thank you. Shall we get into it? What is your turd, please? My turd is that four and a half years ago, after the birth of my little boy, jet um I had a well I had a really traumatic labor anyway but that wasn't really the turds I don't know how many guests you've had on here where it's like the turds keep coming I saw this meme yesterday it said when you get to the age where you realize a series of unfortunate events was based on your life (laughs) you don't read the children's book anymore because it's just your life and that's basically what I think of encapsulate 2018 to be. Mm. I thought the turd was the labour because that was so full on, the, the birth of my son. And then um, then I didn't realise that was nothing. And then I got hit with a rare and debilitating mental illness called postpartum psychosis, which landed me in a psychiatric ward when my baby was just three weeks old and we were separated Um and then I came out of that and then I was hit with a depression. So it was it was a year of turds, basically. Yeah, and it's it's quite a it's quite a significant one, isn't it? And um I mean, you know, it's it's huge. I knew nothing about postpartum psychosis. You probably knew nothing about postpartum psychosis. They don't really tell you that. When you first go to the GP and you say, Okay, I think I'm pregnant, now what? what's the next steps? They don't go, well, there's this thing called postpartum psychosis and these are the signs and symptoms. So um, from what I can gather, you don't know what you're going through, but you're going through so many things. There's a lot happening. And how do you then eventually identify what it actually is? Like, tell me in, you know, in as much detail as you want to about that time and how you eventually got that diagnosis. Sure. So, no, exactly as you'd said, I'd never heard of the illness. Um, And in fact, 
you know, still, even that the psychiatric ward where I went, they have only had only had one case of my illness before, and I think one case since. So the illness is different from postpartum depression, from postnatal depression, it, and mm-hmm. it certainly isn't the baby blues. And often it gets misdiagnosed. I think I was diagnosed with PTSD and something called severe adjustment disorder, which I'm still not quite sure what that is. Um, you know, uh, th- there was so many other things that it could be because obviously it's such a big turbulent life change for you and I also think looking back I don't think the doctors wanted it to be that you know they were like they didn't just want to to be fair to them pile me on loads of medication antipsychotics is a pretty big drug to be on so but that said you know I know we've spoken about this before but antidepressants take a long time to kick in so it is an illness that you have to act fast you know it is seen as a medical emergency and the symptoms can come on thick and fast imminently and they they do mean that you're a major threat to yourself and quite potentially others around you so for me um it was I believe I believe in my mind triggered by a traumatic birth followed by sleep deprivation inflamed by the, the possibilities of my baby not making it and being ill in my Basically, my placenta had failed. I think I had undiagnosed preeclampsia. So he was essentially starving inside me. When he came out, he was tiny. So already those feelings of like guilt, um, you know, oh, I was just going around eating cheese on toast in the middle of the night when I should have been getting him out of me so I could feed him, not being able to breastfeed, then being on a ward for a week where it's a shared ward if anyone's been in the maternity ward before with about eight beds and you're only in the maternity ward if something's gone wrong you know there's something either wrong with you or the baby so for example the couple opposite had had twins and one twin didn't make it um and but we're all so traumatized no one's you know if I was there now I would like to think I'd be communicating with these people and making Mm -hmm. bonds but nobody wants to talk or you're just completely in, in a sort of shell shock I guess um and they tried to, to break the, the midwife had tried to break my waters when they'd already been broken. So Jet's head had like all like lashes in it and everything. So I was just like, this is not, I don't like saying this to myself. Like it was not how I expected it because I think the idea of that I got ill because it didn't meet my expectations is actually not fair on myself. I, I had to go through a big process of that, of going, it's not, it's okay to, it's okay to have wanted the experience to be enjoyable, to be nice. You know, we, we see it on film and television when somebody gives birth and it's actually, oh yeah, hard work, but part of being alive. And I was looking forward to that challenge, um, even though it would be possibly dangerous or scary, all those things, I, I wanted to do it. And I wasn't in denial or delusion that it would be difficult. So I don't like it that I didn't, you know, go mad with you know speech marks because it didn't go to my expectation but mm-hmm. I certainly didn't think I would be holding because I was two weeks overdue a tiny angry livid skeletal baby with s- big lashes all over its head so that was a big shock and mm-hmm. then there for a week so my sleep I'm not saying this so everyone goes oh wow but I caught sight of my notes and I'd fed for like 20 20 hours with a five minute break and then back to another four you know he just wanted to feed non-stop and they have all these procedures in the maternity ward, so you're not allowed to um, fall asleep with the baby on you. The baby has to fall asleep before you can put them in the um, Moses basket and then and then you can sleep. But it's just impossible in this shared ward with all the babies crying at different times. So I thought when I got back home, everything would be okay. And that's when I started to unravel. So postpartum psychosis classic symptoms are insomnia, 
racing thoughts, suicidal thoughts, delusions, extreme paranoia, anxiety, depression, mood swings, basically everything you wouldn't want all crushed. There is apparently some euphoria, but I didn't get absolutely any euphoria. And, And as I said, it's seen as a medical emergency. So you have to really act fast. Hearing voices, hallucinations, delusions. Oh, it just goes on. Okay. And so when, because, you know, you've said just now that it's often misdiagnosed as postnatal depression. So what, did you go to the GP and say, this isn't, like I'm having these like wild thoughts. What do I need to do about them? What did they think it was? Well, The thing that I'm most proud of in the whole experience, and I know that I come from a place of privilege with this because I was able to say straight away to the doctors, I'm not feeling okay, you know, and I know that isn't the case for everybody. Yet, I will say that I write for my job every day. So it's not like I don't have a a relationship with explaining myself. Mm -hmm. And even though I was ill, I do still think, you know, I'm not prescribing any blame to the NHS or the um, professionals that I were met with. But I was explaining very clearly, I believe, to the best I could at that moment without knowing this illness, what I was going through. And yet still I wasn't being met with, this could be this. I think once that word psychosis came up, um, it was once or twice actually, a health visitor said um, at some point, "Do do do you think you're God? do you think you're God at any point? And I was like, no, I I literally feel like I'm a piece of shit, like definitely not God. (laughs) And then a GP once said, are you hearing a voice from anywhere and turning around and it's not there? And I was like, no. In fact, if anything, that scared me more. So it it took my, my, all these diagnoses being thrown at me, but I will tell you that, you know, I, as a person, I've never done a drug in my life. Loose tea leaves tip me over the edge. I get high, (laughs) you know, from that. So suddenly being on these sleeping tablets, where they're not even touching the side. I'm like on speed, you know, I can just burn through any medication. It's not even having an effect on me in any capacity. Uh, And then it got to the point where I was extreme. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, any of your listeners have. It's extreme catatonia. So like literally a body, like a a heap. And And even when someone's talking to me, you know, I'm just like not able to resonate or um and this was on a Friday where my we had to take Jet for a jab and I was just had to say he was having an injection in his arm and I was just like I'm not reacting but at the same time feeling like all the doctors and nurses are watching me and I better act like mm-hmm. I care that a sharp thing is going into his arm but I literally can't even think and then um, I was meant to hang on to the weekend but by this point, I was just so sick and suicidal. And um, on the Saturday night, I was luckily hospitalised. We had a friend that knew a paediatrician and they said, oh, he was really, really qualified and experienced and said, this could be um, postpartum psychosis. And if um, they said, in my opinion, if this was my daughter or wife, I would not wait. I'd get her into hospital. And the Sunday I woke up, it was my first mother's day. Can you believe it? How well-timed. Um, and um, woke up on my first Mother's Day in a psychiatric ward with an eye that I didn't recognise just watching me. And that was the worst point of my whole entire life, but also the best moment because it was the rock bottom, but it was the chance when I thought, I am safe. And also, I've read this before, that there is a huge sense of relief that comes from being hospitalised because you don't have to try anymore. People, It's an invisible illness People are finally seeing that you have to, you can just give up, you know, you're handed over at that point, which is like, 
because so much of mental illness or m- poor mental health is pretending you're okay when you're not. That was when the first bits of glitter began to sprinkle on the ship. Yeah, before we get into that. Um, so when you say you were in hospital, were you on like a psychiatric unit at this point then? Yeah, so when I say hospital, at, when Jet was three weeks, yeah, it was a psychiatric ward. Yeah. General wow. psych. Right. And how long were you there in total? I was there for two weeks. I definitely should have been there for longer. The reason why I came out when I did, I think, think is because first of all I was already even though I was so poorly experiencing mum guilt because I was taking time out yeah people don't mean to but you know their first reaction when they hear what I went through is not so much anymore because they know not to so I would exile them from my life is when they say oh poor Jet poor Hugo Hugo my partner Jet my son oh poor them the poor boys how do they cope without you you know and um I felt so guilty already that I had like not been around in a physical way, in a physical sense, not changing the nappies, not giving the milk or doing bedtime. But then also an emotional level, am I going to miss that precious bonding time that is drummed into your mind when you have a baby about the golden hour and skin to skin? And is he going to recognize my smell? And am I going to know him? Are we going to not have a bond for the rest of our lives? All these things are going around my mind. The other thing that drove me out of the hospital was I had a very big conspiracy theory that was so convincing, I think I even managed to convince my family and even some of the doctors, which was that Hugo was going to be leaving me with Jet and his whole family was in on the whole conspiracy to take Jet away from me. And I believed I was going to be in some sort of court settle, you know, like a kind of custody battle. um, And I had to be in court. So I had to be the most A-star mum you could ever imagine. And by doing that, I had to go to all the group therapies, take all my medication, eat three massive meals a day, sleep 10 hours a night, just be this, so that on paper, I was just this, you know, A-star student, goody-goody two-shoes my way out of there. And I thought if I was in the hospital for longer that I wouldn't get my chance to to fight as a mum. So even though it's twisted and messed up, that drive really did help me stay alive, which is kind of backwards. But um, And then I I had a really weird week because I was, was discharged, but I had a week at home, but I wasn't allowed to be on my own with Jet. So that was really strange because it meant that Hugo you know, was just like having to do all the changes and he wasn't a dick about it, but I could just sense this, oh, I couldn't really leave you in the room. And even though I had no feelings, negative feelings towards Jet, it was a strange time for us all that bit. Yeah, you're so desperate to get better and prove something, but equally like there must be still be some sense that, no, this is a process and I, I, I need to go through it like properly. And, you know, you were so relieved to be there. And then suddenly you're, you're then feeling so much pressure to get out because you're worried what other people are thinking. And you must have got to a point where you're like, is this a, you know, is this part of this, the illness? Or is this just me being a mum? Like those two must have been smashing together constantly. Oh my God, I was, it was a complete riddle. So there was no... I mean, that's really um, generous of you to afford to me to think that I was having that clarity, that sense of a process or anything like that. Mm. I don't think I was even aware. To, I I feel like I was just in a sort of hell, a state of, yeah. of what I can only describe as of hell because uh, I, I lost all sense of trust with myself. And when you lose sense of your trust with yourself, so even uh, the very doctors that are trying to give you medication or give you a pearl of wisdom or listen to you for a minute or change your bedding or whatever, 
you can't even trust kindness. You can't even believe that anybody is there to actually help you. You're like, it's that's that's the most painful bit. So even when someone will give you a reason to stay alive, you're grateful for that millisecond of time. And then you're like, I don't know if you've seen that film Shutter Island, but I really resonate with films like that, like kind of psychological thrillers and horrors. Mm. That's what it's like because you trust them for a second. The second they're gone out the door, you're like, oh, they're in cahoots with Hugo. You can't trust them. You did see them in the corridor, didn't you? And then you wrote their name down and you, you, you want a second to be able to try and iron out your thoughts. And obviously I write, that's how I communicate. But anything I believed I wrote down to try and just process something, I would feel like I had to eat the paper and then I would go. But if you eat the paper, then they're going to know what you, they're going to, you know, it, your mind is catastrophizing all the time. I'll be honest, I didn't know what awaited me on the other side of this I I kind of thought this was a holding place for something even worse to come everything was just like this is this before the the bad bit comes but did you have a sense one thing I do know is that I don't want to die or did you want to die did I want to die um I didn't want to die I didn't want that to be my ending like my story at that point by suicide yeah. I would have liked to have not been alive. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this kind of carelessness with your life as well, like a kind of wishful thinking. I, I was really frightened. I still am frightened of suicide. But it was like, it, I kind of wouldn't mind if a truck just accidentally hit me mm-hmm. or if there was just a trap door in the ground and I just fell through it or yeah. I was just careless with this or whatever because... I was in so much pain when this is the, you know, when people say that it's weak, mental illness is, is, is associated with weakness or that suicide is selfish or cowardly or any of these things. I cannot tell you the athleticism that is required to be alive when you are faced with this, an illness like um, psychosis or depression. It's, it's like nothing else I've ever experienced. Mm. So I wanted it to be over. I was in pain. If you could yeah. see what I was feeling, you would... I, I think a suicidal thought is is like a heart attack to the brain. That's how I think of it. So my brain was having heart attack after heart attack after heart attack. And I was just being told to cheer up and look at the bright side and finish my apple crumble. So uh, I didn't think... And I, and I definitely didn't want that to be Jet's story. Like... I didn't want it to be that he was going to die, his mum was going to die because like, by suicide because I thought that's going to be his story for his whole life. And I, and, I, and I loved life the second before I had him. I love life. I'm back to loving life now. So it was just this strange... That's why it's so dangerous because in a psychosis, you can have for even two weeks, a month, a few months, you can be down down you know if it's a graph of your life how can you go from up here to down 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 the depths you've never been so low but it's just about holding on putting all that scaffolding you can around that one moment of time because guess what you are going to get back to there and then better and better and better but you just can't see it at that time that is that is the bit that is wild for me it's just this danger zone how can that happen I I really don't know, you know, and people say, hold on, you're going to get better. I'd think, oh, everyone else does, not me. You know, you can't believe anyone. When, yeah, when I think, when I hear your story, I mean, I've read your book and that's when I first came across um, this illness. I was like, how can your mind, how can it be so precarious? How can you go from something you're certain of 
i.e. loving life, wanting to be alive, having clear thoughts to like your brain being so the opposite. That is terrifying. But equally, I'm also kind of glad that we have a spectrum of thought and that we can go to loads of different places. I mean, I prefer if we went to happier places. But it makes me think that for those people that have depression, it means surely also some reassurance that, well, you do know that not being depressed exists. Like we, our brains have the capacity to go there. And that must be so reassuring. Not that I'm saying it's easy. It's, it's not easy. And it's take, and it's so, it's fucking hard. Yeah. And uh, although it's just, um, with the paranoia element, you start to believe, oh, it's such a, I did this thing years ago. I need to find it. It was going to go in the book. And then I, I didn't, we didn't put it in the book because it was so long, but I wrote a, a CV of my mental illness and of all the qualifications that it has. And um, the way that it lies, it fools you into thinking that you're the, you've no one has ever been as ill as you before. And that's such a strange Mm -hmm. thing because we forget the track record of human beings, the resilience. We know, we know human beings can go through hard stuff. Mm -hmm. We've seen it. Yet when you go through it, you go, yeah, but they haven't, they haven't been like this. You know, we forget all of our intelligence that we and wisdom that we've known for all these years. And um, I really, without getting emotional, you know, I really do have Hugo a lot to thank for that because he, as you know, the boys, you know, they they lost their mum when they were young, and I and that that in a way, his wisdom there. He's got such a, and he shouldn't have had to go through that as a teenager, this life lesson, but he's got such a tolerance for bullshit Mm. that that really kept my feet on the ground because I thought he went through that as a child and his mum was ill for a long time, you know, to go through that, I can do this, you know, and that I I didn't have to think, use my imagination or work very hard to see real uh, strength right in front of me, you know. I had seen the evidence, it was there as a reminder. And I had to sometimes hold on to that. This might only apply to anyone that's been like uh, really depressed or sick to understand this, but you, it's so cruel because the illness, because some of you just wants to go to yourself, can you just stop thinking like that? (laughs) You know, this is in your imagination or how about you just don't think about killing yourself anymore? Why don't you just do that? Snap out of it. You, you can't understand why you can't get to that thought. Yeah. Like, for example, now I'm sober. I, I, I sometimes I want to have a drink, but I go, just don't, Laura, don't fuck it up. Why can't mm. I have that logic? Why, I had none of that logic to go, just don't think about killing yourself today. Yeah, right, if only if it <laughs> so, was that fucking um, easy. You can't, you know. Yeah. Honestly, it's like you're, you're the antagonist and the monster you're running from is yourself. You talk about this so just you know you you've got such incredible way of describing things and incredible words um let's talk about the glitter let's go let's move on to the glitter what what is the glitter for you obviously i mean personally i think the book the book is fucking amazing um but what what is the glitter for you what happened next and you can talk my god you want to talk about glitter girl (laughs) You're shining. <laughs> well, um, okay, what was the glitter? Yeah, right. Well, it was the act of writing the book rather than, yeah, the book coming out has been really nice. I'm sure you, you've you written a book. You know how that, that bit's one thing. But 
I didn't really, I was so terrified of my brain, you know, I, it felt so twist up, twisted and messed up that I was like a children's writer. Everyone would always say to me, oh my God, your kid's so lucky, their mum's going to be a children's writer as if I was, um, you know, Mother Goose or something, Mary Poppins. And um, then to, for Mary Poppins to like have her own baby and be like, I can't do this, felt like a kind of messed up comedy. Um like a sick joke. So I had to get over that. I thought I'm never going to be allowed in a school again. All my mind was there. You know, I'm not going to get DBS approved. I'm not going to be allowed near children ever again. All of this stuff. So my writing, my imagination and everything, I, I that's also very, very, you know, important to me. It's my identity is my my work and so I sacrificed that that was the first thing to go I was like I can't trust my brain this computer is just now for filling in forms and looking at train times that's it (laughs) and then I it sort of began to bleed out of me you know as I realized my whole life my parents breaking up or my grandma dying or whatever it was an argument with a friend I I would write so I started doing it itself I and I wrote it all on my phone that really helped me there's some amazing things that have come out of this illness like you know I've only really understood that term boundaries in fact I'm still something I'm trying to learn but the people that have stuck around and have stayed, they're just, they're my lifelong friends now. I am good. Mm. Like, I have got my golden core people that I just love. And they're, they're, they're. Um, food, cooking again, like feeding people, people being in my house and eating and feeding them up and making people happy with food and reading other people's stories like yours, books of people that have gone through hard stuff but have also been able to glitter turds for stories of addiction of grief schizophrenia whatever it is being able to be in a psychiatric ward go on so what are you gonna say no sorry I was just gonna interject with something because you wrote yeah no 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 oh I hate this delay sorry but that you were just because you were talking about books and how they really helped you when you were recovering but in the book I loved I've got it here um uh that you you talk about um this book that you read by Dr. Claire Weeks, self-help. It's called self-help for your nerves, and um, I, yeah, and you have that quote that is now your screensaver. Is it still your screensaver on your phone? Literally right here. Yeah. Ah! Okay. Can you read it out? <laughs> yeah. It says, "Float past tension and fear. Float past unwelcome suggestions. Float. Don't fight. Accept and let more time pass." It's so great. I had float written all over my... Because I think this is... Uh, oh, sorry, lastly, just because I feel like I need to say it in yeah, case yeah, yeah. I have this vision that he'd be yeah. 16 and trawl through all my... Everything I ever do. A jet is obviously the biggest glitter. My little boy is obviously uh, the glitter. The main glitter yeah. is seeing mm-hmm. him grow. Um, we, I feel... I don't know how you feel about this, but I think being a, a young woman after our our parents there was certainly an impression on me like being born and growing up in the 90s of you know Spice Girl era we've got to be strong women you know we don't take shit we stand up for ourselves we fight for ourselves and coming out of the Thatcher world and everything when something hard is presented to us I felt like I had to fight Mm -hmm. like I fight this thing we talked about this Mm -hmm. together you and I and it stirs up the very thoughts anxieties feelings emotions that are the things you need the least when you're going through something hard so you're like where's my six pack I've got a shield on but actually even now when I'm doing this I feel my body locking I feel adrenaline shooting around me 
that's going to push away sleep, self-care, healing cells. Mm -hmm. I need to feel better, my resilience. And I'm going to be angrier and harder at the world. Yes, it needs strength, but strength is not found in like getting your weapons. Strength is actually just waiting, accepting, being patient. Uh, So float, this is not being a victim. This is not like rolling over and being like, yeah, what have you got life? I'm a little bitch, like kick me down. It's just going, it's okay. Like just wait, just let it pass. So I actually had to apply it to everything. I I was a newborn the same time as Jet. I had to float food to my mouth, float myself to sleep, float myself for a walk around the park with a pram, float myself to a play group. Um, And eventually floating became, I was realizing I was doing it. I don't know if you've ever had this thing where you'll be like, I'm doing life, but I'm not doing it properly. You know, I'd be like at play group or feeding Jet and I'd say to my friends, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And my friends would be like, you were literally feeding him, changing him, cleaning his sick, like doing everything. But you would say at the same time you weren't doing it. And um, the floating allowed me to go, you are. What do you think this looks like? You know, what do you think? And that's actually interesting because in the same breath, when I was so ill, I was like, this isn't psychosis. This can't be psychosis. I remember thinking, well, what do you think this looks like? You've got every single symptom. What do you, what do you um, think? Was it, it was, I was in denial. So yeah, the floating, it really, really helped. And PJ Harvey has a song called We Float, which is really, I used to run to that over and over again. So yeah, that's my favorite word. I really, also, it just, just makes me think, is it Modest Mouse got a f- float on? Modest we Mouse they float, do on. float yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, great <laughs> tune. <laughs> that's a good tune, yeah. actually. That's a really good that song. After this. I, I felt, again, it had to be by a woman. I know that sounds so weird. I, I would listen to that now. At the time, I kind of was a little bit like... I need to listen to women that have got through stuff. I was all in that space of mind mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I, that, that the trope of a mad woman was so thick in my brain. Maybe it's because right. I was, you know, grew up around loving Sylvia Plath and all the poets and everything. I thought, oh, this is so, I needed to hear, see women recovering. Now I'm not like that. It's changed. I'm out of that place. But um, it became a women's narrative, a trope of, an, of a sick um, woman, I think. And I had to go over that um stereotype myself as well yeah you know, whatever you whatever it fucking takes to get you through and if that was part of your recovery that's not a bad thing is it no oh my god absolutely yeah you can't look back and go if I did this differently if I did that differently no so what what have you what do you think you've gained what have you learned from opening up and sharing your experience with this well I'm learning every day um I think I've received far more from the illness than what the illness has taken mm-hmm. from me. Um, I feel grateful that I have learned these skills in my 30s that I'm able to teach my little boy about CBT and about how to take care of himself and how to ask for help. I've let go of shame, which has been really amazing to be able to just say to people openly, I'm having a, you know, a busy day or a bad day, whatever day, and I can't see you today. Whereas before I would have gone, I reminded myself of that Julia in Motherland, you know, going to absolutely everything and stretching mm-hmm. myself so thin. And that's been really good being sober. I, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the mum now that I really wanted to be. And I don't think I would have been that without the illness because I would have been going, oh, but to be a fun mum, you've got to be out all the time and doing this and doing that and being really, you know, vivacious and, you know, 
partying and social and everything because it was such a thing isn't it where you don't we so don't want to be the the 1940s in the kitchen mum that we you know might make us go the other way and um the illness has made me want to stay miniature and enjoy those slow moments too um and leaving the fun stuff for my work so that's been really good I, I know how to take care of myself which is been really yeah great and and reminding myself that I'm a part of something bigger you know you only have to walk past a bus stop to know someone's going through something so um that has I feel really plugged into the world which is a a good feeling when you've been at a stage where you thought at one point I might be a dead mum I think surely everything above that is fucking glorious right I do not care if he doesn't have some letter for school I'm just like (laughs) fine (laughs) Uh, yes. Um, and his w- first word was mama. You put me through hell and now I'm your favourite. So how about that? <laughs> yeah, when he when he wants me across the room, I'm like, yes. <laughs> oh my God, being seen like that from a child, like be- being chosen, bloody hell. And I feel like just being an auntie. You know, talking of of that, like the, the book, your book, you know, I read the book because I knew you. And I love your words and I knew and I wanted to know what you'd been through. Um, but obviously as not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't had children. I'm not going to have children, but I'm so glad I read it because I can look at my sister and her being a mother with such greater respect. And, and also I read it um, just before my nephew was born and therefore I could um be aware like that that coping that that heroic coping that I see in mothers all the fucking time like I if I can if I can sort of loosen that 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 slack for them then I could be like you know I I could be that person for them if you know not that I'm not you know I don't want to be the hero but I wanted to be aware of it so that I could maybe pick up on things that they couldn't admit for themselves or identify themselves um, so it was really, really fucking helpful. So it's not just for people that are planning on having children or have lots of children around them and all the rest and all the rest of it. It's for all the mothers in whatever form that comes in. I've written heroic coping down. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I think heroic coping is um, a much more realistic expectation we should put on ourselves rather than being heroes. It's yeah, coping. I love that. It's brilliant. And I'm guessing people have told you how impactful the book has been for them, right? Um, it's yeah, the uh, yeah, but I get a lot of lonely messages and um, mm. from people quite often in, in the thick of it, as you said right at the top of this um, interview, that uh, how it's not a diagnose. You know, it's hard to diagnose. So yeah. I, I do get a lot of messages. People not that's quite a hard position to be in, actually. If people, I'm sure you do, uh, people not wanting it to be this and being the having the thing that people don't want it to be Mm -hmm. is hard um and and sometimes I don't know these people so they'll go my partner's having racing thoughts or she's you know suicidal you know what do you think that Mm -hmm. that is that's the hard bit I'm sure you probably get that Mm -hmm. stuff too and I guess where the NHS is so swamped people or it's such a vague illness how do you diagnose it anyway it's so intangible that's probably the hardest bit but yeah, there, yeah. there's been nice bits too. Um, 
I, I yeah, I know. I do, I genuinely think like even if you've given people, you know, people yeah might come to you and hope for some advice on their own diagnosis, but if you can just nudge them in the right direction, that's enough. It's enough. Um, and I think the words itself, the words themselves in this book, you know, you've you've given people words to the pain that they can't articulate themselves, and um, and that's the fucking great thing about books, isn't it? And it's been turned into a TV adaptation drama, right? It's been turned into an adaptation. Um, that's been, yeah. You know what the best thing thing about that is that I've become bored of postpartum psychosis, and when you're bored of something it's really hard to be scared of it, <laughs> which is so nice. I used to be like yeah. all the time, what if I get ill? What if I get ill? And now I'm like, oh, shut not change the yeah. fucking record, you know? So that's great. So it's made me be able to fictionalize and distance myself even more. So that's wonderful. I mean, there's so many hoops to jump through with the TV world, but now I'm enjoying Cause I feel like the book is all I needed to, that's my language. So that's done now um so yeah i'm just seeing how the ride goes basically amazing <laughs> what would you say the, the key uh lesson was from your turd or the, the glittering of the turd that you want to pass on to people oh the biggest lesson i learned was that mental illness does not discriminate mm-hmm. i don't know what made me think this would not have to be on my plate one day i don't know what made me think walking around going I don't have any mental health issues I was just so naive and I sort of think everyone should spend some time in a psychiatric ward Mm. because it's extremely humbling Um, and you have that moment where you go what am I doing here Um, this is not where I should be why isn't it somewhere you should be you're human aren't you with a brain Um, and so that was very empowering and has informed me for the rest of my life 100% that's probably the biggest thing and that strong woman that I always wanted to be and thought I could be I now am her and I didn't get to be her by you know doing karate classes and piercing my belly button or whatever (laughs) I just got there just by sticking around which is pretty great pretty lazy way of becoming (laughs) But it, but it is that becoming woman, it. Is, but it works. Yeah, it's the it's the being and not so much doing. Um, yeah, it's has... the heroic coping. <laughs> it's the heroic coping spice. Um, I was when you were talking about Spice Girls, I was like, there she is, sat with her little bunches in her hair and wearing an Adidas I T-shirt know. with a striped style. I was like, you do look like Sports Spice today. So you... Thank you so much. Um, amazing. And yeah. then one item or say you know uh tangible or otherwise that has helped you to deal with your turd helped you to glitter your turd one item okay well i i find it really hard to say one i will say books just books cbt and books learning learning i guess wisdom and food and friends and jet and hugo (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the list can go on and okay i tell you what i tell you what I had to learn about self-compassion. I thought self-compassion was like having an ice cream, you know, that I didn't understand. And I was such a martyr in my recovery. I was like, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. Or I need to be able to sleep just on a cold, hard floor. You know, I'd watch SAS, that program with Anne Middleton, and be like, I need to be able to go on this. 
And now I'm the other way and I've bought myself the nicest pillow and the nicest weighted blanket and scented candles and I enjoy my relaxation and my space and I used to wee as a treat. I used to write when I'd be like, when I get to a thousand words, I'll wee. And now I'm like, you need a wee. You stop what you're doing and you wee, you know. <laughs> Self-care has just been so, has been a complete revelation for me. I actually look after myself now, which is really great. Oh, my God. That You are going to take suck all the money out of the well-being industry and say, nah, because all you need to do to look after yourself is have a wee when you need a wee, not wait for it. And that doesn't cost a fucking Although penny. Although I would, I do want to make weighted blankets that are colourful because I feel yes. like all weighted blankets, you only bring out your weighted blanket when you're in the depth of depression and yet they look like you're literally in a physicality of depression, like a, a, a heavy shadow. Mm. <laughs> so that's what I would like to do. Anybody listening, a venture of um, multicolored, um, colorful, glittery weighted blankets. We need to make this happen for you. Absolutely. I know. I'm going to actually, I know. of all the things I'm And I've already put it on Instagram and I've got a few, already I've got a few clients. I've got like two clients. Okay, you've got <laughs> clients, but no, no one sort of from that world who makes them yet. No right. investors as of yet. So go on, go out there and get that, make that happen. Um, sure. Sure. Um, I forgot to ask you. Sorry. This um, d- because when I finished your book, the first question I asked you was, "Did you have your postpartum party?" Because in the book you mentioned that you wanted to have a postpartum party. Um, I well, I did and I didn't. I planned a party and then I didn't feel well, so I yeah. didn't do it. And then my postpartum party was meant to be the book launch, which was meant to be mm-hmm. at London Palladium, and then it got cancelled because of lockdown. Um, we were going to have a big postpartum party, but I did manage to squeeze a wedding in on Jet's second birthday, and I got married okay. to Hugo, my best friend of nearly twenty years at the time, and um, we had the best party and wedding in the world. It was like now looking back, it was like a month before lockdown, and I I feel like there was everyone kept coming back to me like the, the whole year, going it was like it was in the air, you know. Everyone let us have that party, mm. so. Being getting married to him and being at that wedding without anxiety and racing thoughts and suicidal thoughts and everything was an actual triumph. So that was really special. That was my postpartum party. Amazing. Okay, we're going to now listen to Carla about their turd. Okay. I'm Carla and my turdy-shaped turd is losing my best friend April to cancer at the beginning of this year but before she passed away she was a boobette for Copperfield um, and um, we had always seen the copper tracks and uh, and last year we we sort of talked about it like oh wouldn't it be so fun and we'd do this and that and the other and we'd go together and we sort of were talking about it both fully aware that it was highly unlikely that that we would both be going and then uh, January this year, she found out that there was, there was no more treatment um, for her cancer. And at the same sort of time, the applications for the trek came out. But then, you know, grief hit hard and as it continues to, continues to, that encouragement to do the trek, I went away for a week and met the most incredible women. We have just created the best friendships. They have all brought the light to my life that I felt had disappeared when April had gone. No one will ever replace April, but they have given me 
a different light. Thank you, Chris, for setting up Copperfield and for doing the tracks. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Oh, my that. God. <laughs> Same. Oh, I know, I, just so okay? everyone's clear, I'd, I'd never listen to these before they go out. So Neil, my producer, just springs them on me. And they're not, <laughs> they're not usually about the charity in Copperfield. So, um, wow. That's very special. Very. Are you okay? Yeah. I'm, yeah, I am fine. It's just beautiful. I was finding it um, so emotional listening. I can't imagine what that was like for you to hear that. It's a magical offshoot of everything. You know, my turd is all of, you know, everything that happened after is, this is why the only way I can ever describe it is you can't, glitter you can't you can't polish it because there is nothing there's nothing great about cancer there's nothing you, you can't shine the shit out of cancer it's fucking awful it kills people it's killing like so many people and um but if you can do but if you can add the glitter in this way then it's all like it is okay and everything that's happened since is okay so um yeah and, and the tracks are just magic they are. Um, I, we had no idea. They started off just a fundraising campaign, but they are so much more than that now. <laughs> well done, Chris. I hope you're so proud of yourself. Honestly, you should be so fucking proud of yourself. Thank you, Laura. Really, I mean that. Fancy going on a trek? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, 100% do that. 100%. I hope it's a water one because I'll be crying the entire time. I need those <laughs> tears to slink into the water. <laughs> I'll have to do a swimming one. Do you know what? You'd, nah, you'd be sweating so much. Your tears just are sweat. sweat. Sweaty tears. So no one will know. And do you know what? So much crying happens on these walks now. It's um, it's just one big crying fest. So, um, Right. Finally, do you have a drink near you? Water? Whatever. Yes. Then in that case, we shall cheers to oh. your turn. I don't want to bring mine out because you're going to laugh at me. Look at mine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. No one likes to show off. Um, We're going to cheers to your turd and my turd, Carla's turd and April and all the turds in the world. Cheers. You're amazing, Chris. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're amazing. I love you. Mm -mm. Thank you. I love you too. Well, speaking to Laura really reaffirmed to me that we can go through the depth of hell and still come out the other side loving life. Uh, I absolutely love that she said strength isn't found in grabbing your weapons, but in waiting and accepting. Yes, yes, yes. So um i hope laura's words will continue to percolate in your mind for the rest of the day maybe they will allow you to have a wee when you need a wee um and if you do happen to be in a weighted blanket business please do get in touch thank you so much to laura for your insights and sharing your turd with us thank you to carla for telling me about april and for making me cry thank you so much to you guys for listening and if you enjoyed this episode please do share it with someone or online 
subscribe to this podcast so you never miss any future turd stories until next time goodbye